0: Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make podcasts. I spend most of my life online, but I've got no idea how to fix any of the devices that help me to spend my time there. But I've been invited to a party. It's called a Restart Party. And this party might just help me to understand the technology that I use every day and all the time. A Restart Party is a pop-up community repair event where skilled volunteers help people diagnose and repair their broken electronics. They are organised by the Restart Project, who are a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets.
1: Our common sense notion of recycling, those of us say living in a major city in Europe or Canada where we've got curbside collection or a neighborhood recycling center, that's sort of our direct experience with the recycling process. And after that, it's just kind of sort of magic happens and then stuff comes back to us, we think, in some sort of recycled fashion. A company tells us, well, we use this amount of recycled materials to make our products. And that in-between space is this sort of black box for a lot of us. My name is Josh Leposki. I am a geographer at Memorial University of Newfoundland. The bulk of my research is about the geographies of contemporary discards or waste, as well as more and more the global geographies of repair, and especially ICT or, or digital technology repair.
0: Josh's new book. Reassembling Rubbish offers a comprehensive look at what we consider to be waste, why and how we regulate that waste and the conventional and unconventional systems by which that waste is traded, hidden, destroyed or repurposed. We've been following the work that Josh does for some time and we're really glad to get this opportunity to talk to him about how repair fits into a global portrait of waste or discard streams. We'll be cutting between the interview with Josh and some interviews that I recorded at various restart parties in London over the last few years.
1: What's really important to realize is that recycling as we experience it is an industrial process. It involves all kinds of logistics in terms of collecting objects and materials, getting them from one place and aggregating them into others, putting them through a very industrial process that involves large industrial machinery to move the material around, to shred it or destroy it, break it up into increasingly smaller and smaller pieces, and then to separate the materials into as pure as can be material streams, getting really (laughs) high grades of copper but not mixed in with aluminum or plastics and and what have you and to do all of that is a energy-intensive industrial, big machinery kind of process.
0: Why are you here at the restart party? To find out how to repair a tablet that hasn't been working for quite a while. I think a lot more people would recycle if they knew exactly what happened to everything they did recycle. Where it went, how it was distributed and broken down. If it was shown maybe in an advert or posters or a booklet or something, if it was actually shown, then more people would definitely recycle, I'm pretty sure of that. So, I mean, have you got any idea what happens to recycling once it goes into the box? I have a little idea because I've gathered some information today, but before today, no, no.
1: I use the term discards rather than waste because it, it is just different enough from the everyday language use of the word waste to provoke you to ask me the question. Right? And that's part of the point. We talk about discards because we want to make, and we, we see a real need to make waste strange again. Now that might seem like an odd thing to say, but let me illustrate it this way. So when we use the term waste, we often think we know what we're talking about because we deal with waste every day. You and I personally are probably sitting no more than a, you know, a few meters at most from a bin in which you know we know we're supposed to put this or that item. If that's what we think constitutes waste, we are talking about one of the smallest portions of the overall waste stream. At most, we're talking about two to 10% of overall waste arising, if that's what we mean by waste, post-consumer or municipal waste. The vast majority, 90 to 98% of waste arising from industrial systems, happens before you and I even purchase the stuff we consume. And so we need to be talking about discards in order to open up this conversation, in order to provoke you to ask me the question, why talk about discards rather than waste? Right. And, and that's one of the reasons to think about what we might in a common sense way understand as waste, as a tiny portion of overall waste arising.
0: Could you characterize what is happening with electronic waste globally? What countries process their own waste? What countries process for others and where it is flowing to and from?
1: the global picture you know as a geographer i would say is is quite mixed but if you're looking for two big broad patterns it's that the trade is largely within major world regions so we would describe that as internal trade or intra-regional trade so in other words a lot of the trade that is happening is occurring within europe within asia within the americas that's not to say of course that there isn't some trade from one region to another or external trade or inter-regional trade but if you look at total volume the large majority of trade is happening within these regions now that said within those regions we don't necessarily think about it in these ways but there's quite a lot of internal regional variation in terms of relative and absolute wealth so even Europe which you know globally of course is is quite wealthy not everywhere in europe is at the same level of wealth So, we can talk about e waste flowing, as it were, down the hills of wealth from relatively richer areas to relatively poorer areas. There's all kinds of variation to that.
0: The Basel Convention makes transfer of electronic waste illegal between certain countries. Can you explain its intent and what its impacts are in practice?
1: The Basel Convention covers a lot more stuff than just electronic waste, and it it goes back to the late 1980s. It has a really sort of unwieldy full title. It's called the Basel Convention on the Control of Transboundary Movements of Hazardous Wastes and Their Disposal. So we'll just call it the Basel Convention, but as you can tell from it, its title, it was initially developed to cover a very wide range of materials of which electronics is a suite of materials. Now, where the Basel Convention gets tricky in terms of practice is around electronics. I'm trying to avoid getting too technical here because there are two parts of the convention, two appendices to it where different lists of materials that pertain to electronics occur. And one of those lists is about wastes that the convention will cover. And so there's a, a list of materials that are relevant for electronics. And then there's another list in a separate appendix that says, and this is what the Basel convention will not cover. And some of the same materials and some different ones that are relevant to electronics appear on both lists. So electronics is sort of both waste and non-waste under the convention, which makes it very tricky. Um, (sighs) And indeed, at the international policy level, that distinction has been a huge debate for at least a decade and negotiations over trying to define the difference between waste electronics and non-waste electronics has been going on since at least 2010 and the most recent round of negotiations was unable to satisfactorily resolve that question and the negotiations basically collapsed around 2015. And now it's back to being an open question about how to distinguish waste from non-waste electronics. But then in, in practical terms, another reason that the Basel Convention is tricky is that in order to decide what is legal trade versus illegal trade, it divides the world up into these two monolithic blocks of countries. One monolithic block is made up of the Organization for Economic Cooperation Development, OECD, the European Union, and Liechtenstein. Why Liechtenstein? I don't know. (laughs) And the other block is made up of everybody else in the world, everyone else who's a, a signatory to the convention. And the convention treats everyone else as equally vulnerable to any exports that come from OECD or EU to them, but there's no internal vulnerability. So in the second group, in the non-OECD group, the everybody else group, you've got countries as radically different as, say, Singapore and Botswana. Right. And if you look at some basic uh, income data, say, from World Bank or any international organization like that, you'll see that Singapore, for example, is richer per capita than Canadians or the U.S. by a lot. And yet, because it's part of this second group, it can send, I mean, I'm making this example up, but it could send its electronic waste to Botswana, but not violate the Basel Convention. Right. Because they're both part of this second group. So the Basel Convention was initially designed for, in many ways, a very different world than we live in now. In the late 80s, maybe it still made sense to talk about developing countries. That's the kind of language you find in the Basel Convention itself. Of course, today, there's Huge income inequalities on a country by country basis. Of course, that is going on. The picture of who is relatively wealthier than who is much more complicated than those monolithic blocks of countries that the Basel Convention divides the world up in in order to regulate legal versus illegal trade.
0: What are the current and future trends and changes that you're monitoring now?
1: I'd say the biggest practical change is China's filing with the World Trade Organization back uh, July of 2017. This was the formal document that they submitted. It boils down to we will no longer accept what China's calling foreign garbage and this right. is this is the first time that they've done this as a WTO filing which is quite different than putting up national legislation in China at the border to try and uh, regulate inflows of depending on your point of view recyclables from from abroad or foreign garbage from from elsewhere as you know i'm sure you've started to see in european media this is having major consequences for not just electronics recycling systems in Europe but recycling systems in Europe, the US, Canada. Mundane door-to-door or curbside recycling programs are now starting to feel the effects of what had been this giant market for discarded materials effectively shutting down and going away. And it, it's a fascinating process to watch because, like I was talking about before, that sort of giant black box between us and our little blue box and the industrial systems behind that is, now that this sort of crisis is emerging, is popping up in a more visible way. And so it's very interesting to watch that, how even your local municipal recycling scheme has not just indirect connections with markets in China, but direct and consequential links to logistics systems and infrastructure that has been put in place over decades that lead to places like China, which is now very quickly being interrupted I'm Charles.
0: And uh, why are you here at this restart party today?
1: Well, I found this TV dumped outside my garage.
0: It's a 42-inch flat-screen TV, and I thought that it didn't show any immediate signs of problems, so I thought maybe it worked. But I haven't got power in my garage, so the restart party was just next door, so I popped in uh, to see if they could help. You did actually end up recycling it. Do you know anything about that process? I don't officially, but you do hear horror stories in the news about things getting shipped to China and people being exploited in order to extract the precious metals and chemicals and so on that are in the tv so i would be fearful i i would be certainly concerned that it wouldn't be a entirely you know ethical or good process that went that was next for this tv how real are the images we see of e-waste being dumped in poorer countries and Are they shaped by media representation? The images are
1: real, but they frame the story in very particular ways, as any image inevitably does. Images, in order to make sense, they have to leave out a whole bunch of stuff in order to frame a given story the way that uh, is needed to communicate it. Those images shape our imagination of that very strongly, but also very problematically, because it presents this very partial part of the story as the whole story. That's problematic in a whole variety of ways. What goes along with those media images is usually the proposed solution is recycling. No matter how much post-consumer recycling we do, that will not do anything to solve where most of the waste from electronics comes from, which is in the mining of the materials and the manufacturing of the objects, before you and I even buy them. And so one of the reasons those media images are so problematic is that they, in a way, force us to continue having the same conversation that revolves almost exclusively around recycling as the solution. And yet, for all kinds of reasons, post-consumer recycling is is not it. It's not enough. Those images tend to frame the problem as one almost exclusively about exports from the so-called Global North or developed countries to the Global South or developing countries. And it's not that that doesn't happen, but that's a very small part of the picture. Increasingly, there's more and more domestically generated electronic discard or waste within those countries, growing to the extent that you know even a few years ago now, the split in Ghana was about 50% imports and 50% domestic generation. But since that time, domestic generation has grown even further. So if we frame the problem only as one of export flow from, the, again, the so-called developed world to the developing world, we're missing out what is the best way to manage e-waste occurring as a consequence of domestic consumption in those places that so often get framed as victims of exports from abroad. I think another really important facet of how those media images work in kind of negative ways is to really erase from view this huge amount of economic activity that is going on around repair, reuse, refurbishment, remanufacturing. When the story is only about those sort of standard media images, we miss all of that. And that's actually a huge part of the story that needs to be brought in if we're going to have not just a more fulsome discussion about e-waste, but talk about real solutions that might make a difference.
2: My name's Alvin. I've been in the electronic industry since I was 15 years old. Just retired, been retired 10 years, and I just can't leave things alone. I've just got to fix, got to mend things, can't throw things away.
0: And do you know anything about what happens to electronic waste once we do throw it away? Do you know anything about how that works?
2: Oh yes. I won't mention the name of the company, but the company I work for, we used to have 40-foot containers come in once a week, take all the scrap PCBs and all that away, it used to be sent to foreign countries, shall we say, desoldering all the products, taking the diodes off, taking the gold out, taking the solder out. They're working in conditions where they're breathing all the toxic fumes off the solder. They've got no extractor fans and things that w- we had in the workshop and that. And they used to strip all them panels down, for peanuts, just for the, for the scrap value of all the component parts and the materials that were in the PCBs. <laughs>
1: tons and tons and tons of it that industrial kind of recycling even when it's certified there are discard problems that arise from that they aren't able to collect 100 percent of the byproducts for lack of better term chemicals and materials can become airborne and there have been studies of facilities in the united states that are certified and nevertheless workers have experienced elevated levels of blood lead levels etc and it has carried on to lead contamination in the workers homes and their children via clothing and whatnot one of the ways that recycling sometimes gets distinguished, quite often gets distinguished, is between what's supposedly going on sort of here or in Europe as a very clean, very industrial versus the informal sector, for lack of a better term, in other countries around the world. And there are very important differences between the two, but it would be a mistake to simply say, well, one is entirely clean and without any problems and it's only over there and with them that problems exist.
0: What is a good and resource-efficient system for electronics? over their whole life cycle?
1: This is a question where I think it is really important to think about why confining the conversation to recycling is so important because Efficiency is, in a lot of ways, a trap. Ecological economists will talk about something called the Jevons Paradox. They're referring to a person, William Stanley Jevons, a 19th century economist who did some really important work measuring changes in the coal industry as Britain was industrializing. What his research showed was Something that's sort of counterintuitive, at least at first. And what he found was as technology that relied on coal as its energy source became more and more efficient at using coal, in other words, making more stuff per unit of coal used, the amount of coal used actually increased. So the more efficient you got, the more coal you used. And that's counterintuitive. You would think efficiency would be our savior, as it were, reducing the material and energy footprint of our industrial economies. But the paradox here is that as things have become more and more efficient, people or companies or industries that were using less of that material in the past because it was more expensive can now afford to use more because it's cheaper to use it. So as efficiency increases, we get actually increasing aggregate demand. Efficiency is actually a trap that we have to watch out for very carefully. This is a part of a much bigger conversation, but I like to think through this conversation, through the example of electronics, because electronics is in some ways sort of so iconographic of our contemporary economies in so many ways. We need to be thinking not solely in terms of efficiency, but sufficiency. How much is enough, right? right? And that's a very different conversation than how do we make our electronics more efficient or how do we use them more efficiently? Because the more and more efficiently we use them, the cheaper and cheaper the materials and the electronics themselves will become. And as a consequence, they will become affordable to more and more people. So we're into some quite deep, quite fundamental questions of ethics. Why is it okay for me to be able to afford certain kinds of electronics and not other people? We get into some pretty deep conversations about what is a good economy, both locally and planet-wide, as it were. There are just no easy blueprints or answers there.
0: What would ethical trade in electronics, reuse, repair, and recycling actually look like if we made it ethical?
1: There are some groups already doing some of this sort of work. So at a very quick way to describe ethical trade in in electronics, reuse, repair, etc., we could talk about fostering trade for reuse and repair, refurbishment, and then doing things like ensuring that local facilities in the countries of import exist to handle electronics that do inevitably reach their end of usable life. Organizations like World Loop are doing this kind of thing where they're facilitating reuse, repair, and refurbishment in export markets, and then supporting locally owned and managed recycling facilities that are meeting good occupational health and safety standards. Where such facilities don't exist, the group is facilitating the trade of the portions of e-waste that can't be recycled locally to markets where good facilities exist. I'm increasingly interested in ICT, digital technologies. There is a global industry devoted to maintenance and repair of that, and large portions of that are formal and proprietary, but other large portions of it are more informal and happen outside of branded electronics. And I'm interested in understanding how those work as industrial systems. You know, I'm very interested in the kinds of stuff that Restart and other groups are doing the sort of DIY kinds of stuff. In no way do I mean to uh, bracket that outside, but I, I think it's quite important to open up this question of how is ICT maintenance and repair also a major global industry? Just basic questions. How big is it? Where does it happen? What are working conditions like in those industries or in those sectors? I think one of the things that doesn't get talked enough about is the demand for high quality but used electronics outside of the markets of Europe or, say, Canada and the US, we tend to take for granted a stable, quite high-quality electrical grid into which to plug our devices. That kind of privilege and that kind of presumption is not something that everyone can take for granted in other markets overseas, where electrical grids, the voltages can fluctuate quite substantially, not just daily, but even minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour basis. Ironically, a lot of the older electronics, in particular CRT monitors, are much more robust in terms of handling that fluctuating electrical grid and and surge and whatnot, whereas newer devices are much poorer at handling that kind of fluctuation. There's actually a very strong demand for what was manufactured for the markets of Europe Canada, U.S., say, you know, Japan, Singapore, Hong Kong, five, ten, or even more years ago, because of the actual way that things were manufactured, the, the quality of materials, the quality of components were much more robust than what we are getting in our increasingly thin light devices that we're seeing coming on to the market. I'm also quite interested in uh, what are the environmental offsets of repair and refurbishment compared to, say, recycling or just discard. If devices are being repaired and refurbished, how much energy and materials are being conserved? What waste or discards occur even in the repair and refurbishment industries, and what happens to to those? How do we deal with them?
0: These are really pertinent questions. It's such an exciting and expanding field of inquiry. And it's really excellent that lots of geographers are working on it and looking at it and thinking about it. And not just geographers, but people from different disciplines all coming together to give us a picture of what discard or waste looks like.
1: If listeners are interested in the broader field of discard studies, then I would really encourage them to check out a a website called discardstudies.com.
0: It's important sometimes to step outside of our own experiences and look at the bigger picture. Doing that will help us to avoid the black boxing effect and to see how our household waste, the waste that we create personally, the waste that our friends and family create is tied up within much larger questions and much larger systems. I learned a lot from speaking to Josh and it's making me think again about what the word waste means. I might even start calling it discard to help to kickstart some important conversations. Restart Radio is both a podcast and a weekly show that goes out at 1.30 on Tuesdays on Resonance 104.4 FM, repeated on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at therestartproject.com. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound. And big thanks to Restart's communication assistant, Laura. Today's Restart party is over so it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other goodbye everybody